Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Brian. I'm Marion. And this is a podcast about what happens when policy and culture intersect. I want to talk about something that has actually been an ongoing conversation for the last few weeks, which is the mass shooting that occurred at um, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School about three weeks ago. And we want to talk about it partly because the conversation has been going on for a lot longer than most mass shootings. Um, usually it's something that goes on for a couple of days and then dies out, but there seems to be something different about this instance and our cultural reaction to it. And so we wanted to talk a lot about the gun debate, gun culture in America, and how it's changed over the last few decades. So we're actually going to have two parts for this topic since there's so much for us to discuss. Um, Part one will be more about the history of American gun culture and how it played out in both legislation and in pop cultural representation. And then part two is where we'll talk more about our own personal connections to gun culture and mass shootings and kind of where we see policy heading in the immediate or near future. So buckle up. So welcome to our second episode. Um, we realized in our first episode that we didn't actually explain who we are and why you should be listening to us. So we thought we should do that at the top right now. Um, so I'm Marion Johnson. Um, I am a policy consultant right now. I used to be a policy analyst. I have a master's in public policy. I have a bachelor's in English, almost majored in film. And so that's sort of my, that's my background. Yeah. And, um, I'm Brian Kennedy. Um, Right now, I am a public policy fellow, um, so I research, write, analyze public policy, Mm -hmm. as as exciting as it sounds. And um, I have a master's in public policy. Um, I also have a bachelor's in history, and I got another one of those bad boys in poli-sci as well. Okay, so so, yeah, so that's who we are, and um, that's why you should listen to us. All right, so... Um, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Mary, do you want to catch everybody else up to kind of just so we're all on the same page? Sure. So, um, like I said, on February 14th, 2018, a mass shooting occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The shooter killed 17 people and 14 more were taken to hospitals, which makes it one of the world's deadliest school massacres. The 19-year-old former student was identified by witnesses and arrested shortly afterwards. And according to the Broward County Sheriff's Office, he confessed and was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder. Yeah. So this is going to be sort of a heavier episode maybe than last week's or last month's, whenever we're going to air this. Um, It's going to be a little bit heavier, and that's just a warning ahead. Um, And and I guess we should note, um, today is March 2nd. This is when we're recording. (laughs) Um, so, you know, if there's updates since then, um, then, you know, just keep in mind that we're, the, we're not in the future. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're actually in the past. So. All right. So, um, first of all, we're going to zoom out a bit um, and talk more broadly about um, the gun debate and kind of its place in American history. Um, and so the place I wanted to start was um, in the late 1990s in Oakland, California. Okay. So, um, in 1966, um, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale um, got together. Huey, at the time, I believe, was a law student, 
Um, and they got together and they decided that, um, you know, at the time there had been a, a, a range of, um, of gun violence um, perpetrated by police onto black folk. Um, might sound familiar. Um, and More so, things change. Right. And so they came together and they said, we need to, um, we need an organization that's going to um, uplift people, that's going to provide a service that um, is supposed to be provided by the government, that is protection and support. Um, so we need to create a, a structure that's going to provide that for people. Um, and so what they formed um, was the Black Panther Party. Um, so the Black Panther Party, there's a ton of... Um, there's a ton of misconceptions about what the Black Panther Party was, yeah. um, what their goals were. Um, do not be fooled. And this is, you know, I think that you can tell me what some people would call this conspiracy theory, but it's it's actually, it's actually just history. history. Yeah. Um, and there's a anyway, uh, the Black Panther Party was heavily targeted by the FBI. Um, it was, you know, it was cast as this um, this dangerous, um, unwieldy, un-American type of organization. I mean, they were were treated as a terrorist group. Right, exactly. And all of this was was very intentional. Um, And so I would encourage you, and we'll drop um, a couple of resources in the the further reading on the website, but I would encourage you, um, if you haven't had the chance, to actually really read up on um, on the Black Panther Party, I won't take too much time now. I will say a couple of their um, their stated like key points were that one, they wanted freedom and they wanted the power to determine the destiny of the Black community. Um, they wanted all Black men to be exempt from military service. Um, and I'm skipping around. Um, they wanted an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of Black people. Um, they wanted all Black people, when brought to trial in court, to be uh, uh, tried in uh, in front of a jury of their actual peers, um, so these are all very very reasonable. They wanted housing. Mm-hmm. These are all very reasonable basic things that people should have access to, and that's why the Black Panther Party formed. Um, now, one thing that they were most known for known for um, was their use of um, the practice called cop watching which is essentially their response to police brutality. Mm-hmm. And so, what they would do is they would use um, state law to um, observe police encounters. Um, and so they did so while armed. So the first time that um, <laughs> the first time that they did this, um, it was Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. They had their rifles. Um, they were standing across the street from a police officer who was arresting somebody. And the police officer stopped mid-arrest, came up to them, um, and essentially, like, challenged them. was like, what are you doing? You know, uh, why do you have guns? Um, typical response that you might, you know, <laughs> anticipate. Um, and so Huey Newton starts reading California statutes, <laughs> which obviously... That would enrage. That would <laughs> enrages the officer. Um, but he's pointing out, like, we're, you know, we're within our legal rights. We have to be at a reasonable distance, which has been established to be um, about 10 feet away or 20 feet away. Mm-hmm. You can continue with your activity, um, but we're going to stand here and watch you. Um, and so that's, that's a practice that they started doing. Um, as you might anticipate, the, the California um, legislative body got freaked out. Um, and so um, a conservative representative from Oakland 
introduced a bill called the um, the Mulford Act. And so the Mulford Act essentially banned the carrying of loaded weapons in public space. This, and it should be noted, um, this was 1967 mm-hmm. um, by a conservative representative in, in Oakland, California. It's one of the nation's first gun control laws. And it was done in reaction to the Black Panther Party, who was not violent, but just scaring the crap out of <laughs> white folk everywhere. Um, <clears throat> so the Black Panther Party went down to Sacramento to protest the um, this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did so in typical manner. So it was about 30 people with uh, rifles and shotguns. Mm-hmm. Um, they All legally obtained. All legally obtained. Um, they came into the um, the legislative body or the General Assembly or whatever they call it now in California. Sure. Um, the, legisla- the legislature uh-huh. um, <clears throat> armed. And <laughs> when they walked into the building, um, representatives started hiding behind their desk. <laughs> Um, and they actually arrested the Black Panthers, um, although they had not. For violation crime. of a law that had not actually been signed yet. Right. Um, so um, following that event, the bill was quickly passed yep. <laughs> and signed by none other than the um, original champion of gun laws. You might have heard of him. His name is Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, governor of California. Governor at the time. of California at the time. So all that's to say that the first uh, the first statewide um, gun control law was signed was introduced by a conservative legislators signed into law by Ronald Reagan um, himself um, and the NRA at the time supported the bill. Um, they Ronald Reagan was quoted saying, "Quote: No reason um, why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons." Um, and he said that guns were a ridiculous way to solve problems that have to be solved among people of goodwill. That was from Ronald Reagan. Um, so and that was 1967. That was 1967. There will be a market a market change <laughs> in the way that he feels about gun laws uh, moving forward. Um, but yeah, yeah. So at the same time, obviously the 60s was a huge there's a huge social and cultural movement going on. And part of that movement um, was to enshrine and protect defendants' rights and access to legal aid. And so um, you saw the culmination of that movement in 1966 with Miranda versus Arizona, which is where we get you know the Miranda rights from. This is from Ernesto Miranda, who confessed to and was convicted of kidnapping and raping an 18-year-old woman. His conviction was appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court because he was not made aware of his Fifth Amendment right to protect himself from self-incrimination and his Sixth Amendment right to due process, including the right to an attorney. So whenever you watch like a cop show or movie, when they say you have the right to remain silent, anything you do say can or will be used against you in court. I mean, that's like that's being read your Miranda rights. And this came from this Supreme Court decision. The Warren Court, which is one of the most liberal Supreme Courts in our history, overturned Miranda's conviction, and that's when making a defendant aware of his Miranda rights became a legal priority. Unfortunately, Ernesto Miranda was not the best face for this movement because he was 100% guilty. Um, He was eventually retried and convicted once new evidence came to light. So the Supreme Court case and the entire defendant's rights movement was easily characterized as I mean, by conservatives as a sign that our country was, you know, sort of slipping into moral degradation and that we were starting to care more about criminals than victims. This was obviously very racially coded as well. 
um, Ernesto Miranda was Latino and black and brown people like the Black Panthers were seen as scary and uh, people that we needed protection from. And so to care more about criminals and victims, that is to say to care more about black and brown people than good white people. So this is part of a whole cultural movement, which is why you see like the um, that gun legislation in California. This is part like that's all part of it. So after the Miranda Supreme Court case, um, we started to see a big white lash, this white conservative movement that was a backlash against the civil rights and social justice movement of the 60s. That was against counterculture in general. Um, And there is this idea that, you know, this changed the narrative about who should be armed and when. And it's interesting, you see a lot of people who describe themselves as liberal Democrats up until 1968, suddenly in the early 70s, switch and become conservative Republicans. And I think this has a lot to do with the Miranda case and with where they thought the country was going and with the fact that black people were getting maybe too many rights too quickly. Um, And this is very reflected in the movie series Dirty Harry, which ran from 1971 to 1988. And the basic plot of every single movie in the Dirty Harry series is that you have this guy, Harry Callahan, who's a cop uh, played by literal cowboy superstar Clint Eastwood, who is the only cop in the entire San Francisco force who is actually willing to do what's right and to kill bad guys when he sees them. Thank God for Clint Eastwood. Honestly, thank God for Clint Eastwood. (laughs) He's the one who can stand up against the, you know, like, bureaucracy, against the people who believe in filing paperwork as opposed to shooting bad guys, who believe in due process, um, that whole thing. Um, So again, it's set in San Francisco, which signals to middle American audiences that he's on the front lines of the morality war that they feel like they're losing. And a lot of the bad guys that he kills, and he's the only cop we see actually shoot bad guys, um, a lot of them are black or Latino or strongly coded as gay um, in the first one, at least. After after that, you see it's mostly black and Latinos, and then some people who just have long hair and are like hippies. Um, oh my God. <laughs> it was everybody. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> no, it's awful. And the thing is, like, watching these movies now, it seems like a parody. Like, I was watching some clips a couple nights ago, and it seems like a parody, but it is really how people were feeling that yeah. their country was under siege from these people who didn't believe in law and order. And, you know, they couldn't even expect the police force to protect them because the police force was enthralled to this, you know, bureaucratic ideal that we see coming down from the and, Supreme Court. You know, the crazy thing, and, um, and it's largely the same thing today is like a lot of people who were afraid of <clears throat> just these ranging mobs of um, <laughs> of black people yep. call back to who was that? Um, you want to say the KKK? No, no. The Klan did that also. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, that delightful man. <laughs> but like, these are people who don't even know. Black people, black or brown people, right. who don't interact with them on a daily, you know, on a daily basis, right. uh, for no reason have any like. There's no rationale. Like, they're, they're not under them. threat, right? Right, but they're yeah, they're they're afraid. afraid of they're afraid of this sort of specter, this like dark specter that's going to take over their you know cozy white middle American suburb. Um, 
But yeah, so the way Harry talks about his guns is a huge deal. And again, the fact that he was played by Clint Eastwood, who was a cowboy superstar. Like, he was best known for cowboy movies until this series. Did he also do Indiana Jones? No, that's Harrison Ford. I'm Don't so do sorry. this. <laughs> Stop attacking Harrison I'm Ford so for sorry. no reason. You I'm do this so all the sorry. time. <laughs> okay. He I'm basing not. up my white guys. Ugh. That's fine. <laughs> but he talks about his guns in a really romanticized way. Um, like, they're, I mean, his famous monologue about do you feel lucky punk is about his 44 magnum which he refers to as the most powerful handgun in the world that will blow your head clean off he says this twice in one movie once to a black robber who he apprehends outside of a bank i want to say and once to at the very end to the very obviously gay and strongly coded as pedophile um scorpio killer who's you know like kind of an homage to the um zodiac killer Oh my god, it's amazing. He also refer, like refers to Smith, Wesson, and me as we, so just like strongly identifying with his gun. So this is not a very subtle message. The message is that we need strong white men like Harry to be armed and to protect us from the increasingly dangerous, which is to say, black world. Little side note, he also goes up against feminism um, in a later... That's surprising. <laughs> I know, it's shocking. <laughs> the comments on, this, on, the, on some clips are not great. <laughs> he doesn't like the fact that women who he sees as being, you know, like underqualified for lieutenant positions, he doesn't like them being promoted to being his partner because um, they don't have as much experience as men. It's always men. It's always men who have more experience, who have more, you know, like it's sort of the same argument against affirmative action that Mm -hmm. is always, for some reason, a more experienced white dude who's getting beat out for a job. Um, So yeah, Dirty Harry is sort of the avatar of the white lash that you see starting in the 70s and going through. The series went on to the 80s and so that's sort of, that's when you see this rising tide of conservatism and it's okay to be a bigot because actually these people are terrible and, you know, Black people are scary, Latinos are scary, um, women are asking for too much. And so he's really the face of normalizing the white lash. So I guess um, one thing that's kind of coinciding with the rise of all that um, is the the shift in the NRA. Mm -hmm. So taking it back again uh, (laughs) to the 1800s. Classic history major. um, you know, the NRA is formed from these two former Union um, Army veterans from the Civil or War, from the Civil War um, our military veterans. Um, and so they formed this group, National Rifle Association. And the rationale is that America, like people, people in the Civil War were just terrible, terrible marksmen. Because <laughs> <laughs> most of them weren't trained soldiers. Right, right. Getting back. Yeah. Anyway, so most of you know, they're. They're thing people can't shoot. Um, this, is a, this is a national security issue, um, which makes sense considering, like, the just the sheer population of the nation. Like, mm-hmm. more people were actually needed to participate in wars. Right. Um, and so, the, I, you know, this idea that um, in order to be prepared for a war of some sort, we need to um, just have general good practices of mm-hmm. marksmanship. That makes sense in that context. Right. In that um, era. In that era. So the NRA, um, you know, from that point is closely aligned. You know, that's their thing. They're all about marksmanship, also all about responsible gun ownership. How do you 
on, you know, what do you, how do you take care of a gun? How do you do these things so that you are, you know, prepared in case there's a war? Right. Um, they're closely, they're kind of closely aligned with like Boy Scout ideology of like just preparedness. Um, at some, certain points in history, they're aligned with like conservationism hmm. um, and just like protecting the wild and, you know, sportsmanship and those kind of parallels. It just seems like an alternate universe. <laughs> I, yeah, and I will say, like, I struggle with the whole, like, you know, sportsman, hunter, slash conservationist, but, like, right. that's a, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. That's not my field of expertise. But just, I mean, these are people who care about, like, they care about stuff. They right. care about, like, taking care of um, of nature and, and all that stuff. Caring um, about your country includes caring about natural resources. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, it's almost patriotic. <laughs> really? Can I would you, almost, I would almost work, call work it patriotic. Like <laughs> um, so, so, you know, up until, again, up until 67, they, the NRA backs this, um, this, this, the Milford Act, this gun control law. Part of it is probably racist um, <laughs> against the Black Panthers, I'm sure. Probably. But um, it's in line with their ideology, which is, you know, guns are for wars mm-hmm. um and you know people need to be responsible with with how they're utilizing guns so um this changes um in 1977 there is a takeover um of the nra and what it really what it really comes on the hill hills of is this white lash um and everything you're talking about in terms of just like fear um in the narrative that um that you know, white people are losing their guns and they mm-hmm. need their guns to be protect to protect themselves from um, black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're the lobbying arm of the NRA, which at that point was not very strong, um, starts to gain some power. So 1977, uh, there's a national NRA meeting um, and there's a couple of proposals on the table, one of which is actually moving the headquarters from Washington to Colorado. Um, which is again kind of in line with like the conservationalism, right. um, and more focusing towards like sportsmanship um, rather than on lobbying in DC. Um, because again, I mean, it, it, it's it's really all in line with their ideology. Like, if you're a sportsman organization, why are you based in Washington DC when right. there's all this west, vast Western, you know, um, all this stuff that needs protection, right? Um, so, so. That's a proposal that's on the table um, in this group of organized people. It's a minority group of the NRA, um, which has grown over the last decade or so, I guess. And they come with um, a list of demands, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use like this really highly parliamentary process um, to introduce... Civilized, even? Civilized, I would <laughs> laws and rules as we discussed in our last podcast as long as it's written down it's good um it's all fair game um so use this parliamentary procedure to introduce these i think it's 15 bylaws that essentially just completely alter the um entire state of the nra and what it's focused on focuses on and how it functions and there's a really pivotal moment where they're running around and these guys have walkie-talkies. Um, they're, like, they're whipping up votes, you know? Oh, my God. Um, it's, and also, it was like a nine-hour meeting. It's just a really dramatic thing. Yeah, so they're whipping... Thrilling stuff, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the demise. <laughs> the demise of the NRA, as yeah. it was formerly known. Uh, so they're whipping up all these votes. And um, the what kind of pushes everybody over the edge is when the NRA chief lobbyist stands up to the microphone and takes out this this uh, this voice recorder 
and starts playing this recording of leadership. It's a private meeting between... It really is. This should be a movie. (laughs) Michael Moore should do it. Let's relax. But they, they start they start playing this recording of leadership telling him that essentially he needs to chill out and that his message on the Hill is just kind of like wild and crazy and it's out of line with the rest of the organization and it's really oh, just wow. super conservative. And he plays recording and then like, look, they're, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to take away our guns. Right. And, and that's it, when that narrative starts. That's, and it's a wrap from there. And the NRA has taken over. All the leadership is kicked out. The headquarters stay in D.C. And essentially, they're now a lobbyist organization. They've turned into a lobbyist organization. And an incredibly powerful one. Uh, yeah. I mean, the amount of money that they're able to pump into campaigns is just, um, I mean, it's astronomical. And the fact that a rating from the NRA, like whether you have an A versus, you know, a B or C, means a lot to their base. Right. You might have noticed this um, dynamic being played out most recently um, in Florida yes. with Marco Rubio. Yes. Who is bought and paid for, essentially, by mm-hmm. the NRA. And there's this one moment, and I'm sure you've seen it, and it's, if you have not seen it, please stop. And <laughs> there's this moment where this teenage kid um, in this town hall asked Marco Rubio, will you reject funding from the NRA? And Marco Rubio looks down at his shoes and and starts talking, but the words that he's saying <laughs> mean nothing. I mean, he's saying, he, he starts saying, well, you know, I think that uh, people are in line and agree with my ideas, and it has nothing to do, he refuses to answer the kid's question. And there's something to be said about the fact that you're in this situation as a politician, you know, like, this is a moment that everybody's watching. Right. You know what the correct answer is. You know what your constituents want you to say. And you know what is the right thing to say, like, right. morally the right thing to say. Right. And you just cannot say it or will not say it. I don't know. That's how, I mean, that, I think that shows the power of the NRA as a, as a lobbyist organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, so this is a side note. This is sort of just a cap on the Dirty Harry conversation. So there's this guy named John Milius, who's like my personal, I guess, boogeyman. Like how you feel about King Leopold of Belgium is how I feel about John Milius. So he did, I just found this out a couple days ago. He did an uncredited rewrite of the first Dirty Harry movie and then wrote the rest of the series. And he also, just a fun little note, adapted the screenplay for Apocalypse Now, the film adaptation of Heart of Darkness, which we talked about Mm -hmm. in the Black Panther episode. And most importantly to me, he co-wrote and directed the movie Red Dawn which came out in 1984. Um, it's about how the U.S. gets simultaneously invaded by Cuba and Russia, <laughs> and they invade Colorado specifically because the coasts fall so quickly because, again, they are, I mean, they've given up sort of the moral battle and they're easily they're easily taken over. So Cuba and Russia invade Colorado, and there's a guerrilla team of teenagers who arm themselves because they're two brothers who have been taught by their survivalist father how to shoot how to fight and how to hide in the woods um i think we would call them doomsday preppers today (laughs) they were raised by a doomsday prepper and basically this guerrilla team who call themselves the wolverines after the high school mascot fight back against the invaders and save america um most of them die but they (laughs) but they save america and one really interesting bit of this movie is that the invading armies use gun sale records from sporting goods stores to round up civilians who could fight back. And these people are sent to re-education camps 
And in one scene, we actually see them all get executed while they're singing um, America the Beautiful. So, like, literally something that the NRA today fights against, a national registry, we see it used in this movie as, you know, like, a weapon against us and the best of us, according to this movie. It's like a 1980s conservative fever dream, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's honestly bonkers. And lest you think I'm reading too much into this movie's significance <laughs> um, and just sound like a conspiracy theorist, just note that the operation to c- capture Saddam Hussein in 2003 was named Operation Red Dawn. And the general who named it said it was a patriotic pro-American movie. And that's why he named it that. And a number of powerful conservatives in the early 2000s cited it as one of their favorite movies. So people who watched this movie and really responded to it were, you know, going to war on our behalf they were enacting policy and like it really it was part of a trend that you saw in the 70s and 80s that really set a lot of our foreign and domestic policy yeah that's scary yeah i mean yeah that's just i mean that's scary it's and like again this is part of why i think pop culture is really important because it both reflects and inspires what people are thinking and how people are acting and what sort of policy they make. And so Especially yeah. like in, you know, another topic, but like when we have the increasing levels of just like we we have had just levels of racial segregation mm-hmm. in terms of like who you're interacting with mm-hmm. and um and because there's no black people on, you know, in media and like the images are just very limited to yeah. um just very limited images of what black people are. I mean, Mostly the negative right. portrayals. <clears throat> right. So you've got people who are learning about, learning, quote unquote, about the world right. through these films and just like taking it to the, you know, just taking it as a um, as a real thing. Right. I mean, I think I remember, now that you made that point, I do remember John McCain saying at one point, like, um, Red Dawn is his favorite movie. Like, yeah, like this sort of thing. And if you are a person who grows up not knowing very many black and brown people, but you're watching these movies, that's just, I mean, you will associate black and brown people with the bad guys, with criminals, with people who we need to defend ourselves against. And so, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere that white people feel like we need to arm ourselves against scary black and brown people, especially if you're living in like New York City or San Francisco or one of these urban nightmare scapes. And also we're not just talking about like how people feel. Right. We're talking about like literally what people policy. Do. Right. You know, I mean, like, yeah, this so this is at the intersection of all of this. I mean really <laughs> right. though, like people you know, because it's one thing to it's one thing to like racism is not just like the belief of it's not just the prejudice prejudiceness that you have. It's like acting on that. Right. And like what we see <clears throat> is just like the acting on all of these things um is consistent. Yeah. And it's just really making crappy policy that's a, I mean that's a generous read yeah, yeah. <laughs> to call it crappy <clears throat> um the other thing and actually I don't I'm not a comic book expert by any chance okay. so like if there are comic book fans don't at me <laughs> <laughs> don't fact check this <laughs> but I think the Punisher comes out in the mid 70s oh okay yeah um which oh man like one of the and Comic books are known for their vigilantes. I feel like vigilantes come up a lot in comic books, especially in DC, um, but I guess also in Marvel. But yeah, yeah go on. And like, no, so I, I actually, my first, um, I didn't know what the Punisher was until I saw the Punisher's logo on police cars and what? Googled it. And I was like, oh my God, that is terrifying. <laughs> and so, um, 
That's horrifying. Yeah, so just knowing... Please say who the Punisher is for, you know, people who aren't comic book fans. I mean, the Punisher is... And, I, and actually, I don't know the difference between the Punisher in the comic book and the Punisher in the Netflix, the new Netflix series. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he's a vigilante who's um, going out and killing people. Yeah. I mean, just, like, straight up murdering people. Very... It's... The Netflix series, at least, is just, like, gratuitous, gratuitous, gratuitous violence. <laughs> Um, it's terrible. And that's what I know of The Punisher, that it's like, as a comic book, it was known for its hyper-violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only seen, I think it was the 2004 movie starring Tom Jane, movie star. Um, it's not a very good movie, but it is like, it's about, and I don't know if this is true to the comic book, but it's about a man whose family is killed. And yeah. so he just like goes on a killing spree, basically, right. to deal with his grief right. and pain in the most hyper parody of masculinity possible yeah that's i mean that's how the netflix series is as well and again i don't i I can't refer back to the comic book yeah but um but yeah i mean it's so violent to the point where like i was watching it and then i had to stop it because my one-year-old was in the room i was like no (laughs) can't no can't be around this you're not gonna be in therapy 20 years blaming me for this i mean it's it's really bad (laughs) (laughs) yes it's really bad but all again like it all comes back to like this moment in the 70s and 80s where um, where all this culture is just influencing policy. And, I mean, you, you've talked about this, but um, it's all related to, I mean, this is the same time where welfare reform is happening mm-hmm. and, like, um, the narrative of the welfare queen and just demonizing of people and, um, yeah. And it's, yeah, I think the vigilanteism, too, is very interesting because that is part of the white lash that you see in movies, like the movie Death Wish, which came out in 1974, I think, or 1976. It's the years in the title, but I can't remember. <laughs> and it actually just got remade um, in 2017 by Eli Roth, starring Bruce Willis. It got pushed, its release date got pushed back. It was supposed to come out in November. But after the mass shooting that a sort of angry white man perpetrated in Las Vegas, movie studios thought, why don't we wait and not release it at such a sensitive time? Unfortunately, this country can't go can't go even six months without a mass shooting, and so it's coming out now on the heels of the Parkland mass shooting. Um, and it's like the whole story is just a man whose family is murdered, uh, his wife is murdered, his daughter is beaten into a coma, and so he goes on again a hyper parody of masculine um, retribution. In the original movie, he just kills everybody he sees who he thinks is a bad person, and this is in. New York City in the 70s and so like there's a mugger around every corner and they're probably black um in this new one it seems like he's just killing the people who are involved in his family's um attack but it's still an old angry white man who is enacting justice because nobody can help and so he needs to arm himself against the evils of the world it's yeah so I mean to say that we're in a white lash right now is not like it's kind of an understatement um, <laughs> with the president that we have currently and how he got to be president after our first black president Amen. Um, but yeah, so it's just it's interesting like these parallel like these parallels are continuing, and this stuff doesn't go away like this is there's a straight line going through all of this. All right, so when we talk about um, gun debate, gun laws, 
um, kind of the natural place for people to go is the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is a fact or not. I'm going to say it's probably true. Okay. Most of people, most people probably do not know what the Second Amendment actually says. No, most people um, don't know what any of the amendments actually <laughs> say. They just say that's fair. Fifth Amendment rights. I have a Fifth Amendment right, and you don't really know what that means. And even even those who have an idea of the Second Amendment, um, I would argue that no one actually understands what it actually means except constitutional um, scholars no especially not <laughs> especially not now um so i'm gonna so what the second amendment actually says is quote um a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed mm-hmm. okay so there's a couple of things in there right there's the militia part yep which often gets left out. <laughs> There's the being necessary for the security of a free state, which often gets left out. So there's half. <laughs> um, Fully half of the Second Amendment gets left <laughs> out of the conversation about the Second Amendment. The rest is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So there's a couple of different ways that it's been generally interpreted. One being that it was written in, you know, 1781. Mm-hmm. And they had just finished a revolution. And so there was an actual fear of right, know, right. being overtaken by a foreign party. Right. On top of that, that militia, I mean, that, that revolution was fought largely by militias because there was no federal government. Right. There was no organized military. It was largely, again, you know, you have the constitutional army. Right. You have this is piece by piece, state by state, making contributions. Also, there's not like a huge federal arsenal of weapons that's managed by a central structure, um, a.k.a. the military that we have today. Right. So people the way that militias work um, and like this is some basic schoolhouse rock stuff. But like, you know, the, don't remember this. <laughs> but essentially, you know, the military leader or the army leader or whoever came and was like, hey, y'all, uh, there's a battle. We're going to war. You know, everybody who has guns, come and join us. That's how mili- That's how armies were formed. Right. So under those circumstances, you might understand why it was necessary to have weapons in your personal, like, uh, possession. Right. You had to be, it felt like you had to be ready at a moment's notice. Right. Because you actually very recently did have to be ready at a moment's notice. The other thing, and I'm not going to go too deep into this because um, I don't, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but... I mean, if you think about just, like, what protections, like, what structures there are, um, I would argue that, you know, well, <laughs> you're more likely to run into, like, a bear. <laughs> you know I, mean? I mean, like, or, or like, you, you might need to hunt. Like, there's some very, very, they don't have as many grocery stores back then. As they so, like, there are some very, very... I don't know if if you ever looked at like 1700s. If you ever played Oregon Trail, <laughs> there's quite a few differences between like 2018 and the 1700s. Right. That said, um, you know, so there, there's a difference in how we interpret this. Um, the other thing, just being like really nitpicky about the wording, um, is that you know, be, after militia, it says being necessary for the security of a free state. Right. So the other. And again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I will claim I will pretend to be one for just a brief moment. Speak on it. Um, the right to keep and bear arms 
it depends on it being necessary for there to be a secure and free state. That's right. what it seems like the words say. And so I think, you know, so like in a red dog scenario, right? Exactly. We got invaded by Russia and Cuba. Exactly. And so, you know, it's weird to, it's weird that these arguments are like, it's our right to own guns. It's like, for, right, to what sense. end? Yeah. Right. To, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't like you. Yeah. To what end? It doesn't make sense. This is not the 1700s anymore. This is not Red Dawn. Um, this is real life, and we don't need people to jump to it and just join the military. I mean, uh, the militia. Um, so just a little bit of constitutional history about how the Second Amendment has been applied. Um, the first time we really saw, not the first time, um, actually, it's interesting, side note, the first time we saw the Second Amendment um, kind of come up was um, right after the Civil War. Um, and actually, what had happened? What had happened was <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan um, yeah. was preventing Black people from getting guns. The state would not do anything about it. The federal government said it's upon the states to enforce the Second Amendment, so we're not going to touch it. Of course not. Uh, so anyway, I thought <laughs> so that anyway. Was, I thought that was interesting. So then, all right. So, but again, like it's part of the conversation: who should be armed? Right. Exactly. Like, and who should okay. we be protected from? Right. Exactly. We should be protected now from free blacks who are presumably going to roam the streets, raping, pillaging, and murdering defenseless white women. Right. 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 Um, so we're going to skip to 1886. Um, Presser v. Illinois. Um, and so it was a Supreme Court case where the opinion of the court came down and said um, the right to bear arms is for the good of the United States um, in, in, the, in case there's a need to form a militia. Which, you know, it's kind of what I said. Um, <laughs> it's almost like the exact interpretation <laughs> that constitutional scholar Brian Kennedy <laughs> made. That was, that was in 1886. We see the next case, um, next major case in 1939, um, and it's U.S. versus Miller. I mean, what it actually allowed for the banning of sawed-off shotguns, um, and the rationale was <laughs> like, this doesn't seem to have a military application. It does again, again, going back to like the purpose of having weapons is for national defense, right. um, and so it uh, it was actually like it was during the time of like um, organized crime and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it was again another gun control measure saying not all of these weapons are necessary. Um, are necessary. They don't make sense and they're not protected by the Second Amendment. We're going to skip ahead um, <clears throat> about seven decades sure. to 2000. And, um, 2000. Can yes. I skip back real quick? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to skip to 2008 just yet. Not 2008 yet. Um, 1857. Okay, skipping back all the way back. I know. Just stay with me. This is just an interesting side, side nugget. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this, the, the, not the Second Amendment, but gun ownership was used in a Dred Scott case. So, um, 1857. in 1857, did I say 1957? No. 1857. So for those of you who don't um, remember, Dred Scott was, um, was an enslaved person who um, traveled to a free state with his owners. Once he got there, he sued for his freedom. Um, which is just gangster. <laughs> so every time I hear about this guy, I'm like, yeah, you go ahead. Like, <laughs> the court ruled that he did not have standing to bring a lawsuit because he was not a person. Um, and the rationale that was used in the case was, imagine if we considered black people to be people, they would have the right to guns. Right. And then the court was like, yep, nope. We can't be having that. <laughs> so, then they might rise up against us and, you know. 
right. fight for their freedom. So, all right. So that that's a side side nugget. But so I want to bring us up to the first time, the first U.S. Supreme Court case where the um, they actually ruled on a gun control law, um, and that's 2008 D.C. District of Columbia versus Heller. Mm-hmm. So D.C. had passed a, um, a ban on handguns in the in the city as a way to address um, gun violence. Reasonable. It makes sense. It's a straight line. So the NRA, and we will talk about the NRA at a brief moment. This is current day NRA. Mm-hmm. Um, they've completely made the transition. The NRA um, is looking for test case, cases because they want to challenge the law. Um, and they keep, they, I think they interviewed something like 17 people. Um, and nobody had standing, which means that nobody had been negatively affected by the law. Gotcha. Um, so they couldn't, they actually didn't have standing to, to pursue the law. That's that policy I degree. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about the law. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they couldn't find, they couldn't find anybody with standing. And then there's this guy, Heller, who is like the worst person that not the, not the person who they want. He's racist. Mm-hmm. He's just I don't want to use I don't want to use the word crazy because he's just a terrible person. Yeah. Um, and he's racist. So hand in hand. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that he um, he files for a gun license in the District of Columbia. He is denied and that gives him standing to challenge the law. Um, so he sues. It goes to the Supreme Court. Um, and they rule that the Second Amendment um, protects an individual's right to own a gun, and the law is overturned. So that's the first time, 2008, it's the mm-hmm. first time we actually see um, the Second Amendment being applied as an individual um, right on a, um, on, a, on a national basis. Right. Um, so there's that, just a brief history of the Second Amendment and how we got to kind of where we are today. Um, so that was part one we'll be dropping part two a little bit later um be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes you can find us on itunes stitcher soundcloud and anchor And you can find links to all of those on our website at the-intersection.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at at the podcast. That's A-T-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And yeah, shout out also to Seven Keys who produced our music for us. And you can find him at at Mr. Underscore Seven Keys on Instagram. And that's the number seven, not the word seven. So see you guys next time. On the next episode of At the Intersection. That actually changed the country and how we talked about guns and how we talked about school safety. Um, Because that's when we started having metal detectors in public schools. And that's when we started having a lot more police in public schools. And I mean, it was a very scary thing. I mean... It had just never occurred, I think, to us as a nation and to me as a person that somebody could bring a gun to school and could kill people, could kill their classmates and their teachers. Um, So that is when I think everything shifted in this conversation.
am I prepared? Like, mm-hmm. can I do this? Can I protect my students if I need to? And I mean, I would just like be, I would catch myself thinking about scenarios in the classroom and like I would be in the middle of teaching and I would be looking around my classroom and playing out scenarios in my head and thinking like, what's the place in the classroom where we would all hide? How much time do I have to, to snatch students out of the hallway? Um, you know, what do, you know, what, just what do I do? And that was just like constantly running through the back of my head. 